So the year was somewhere around 1070. 1070 AD. And there was a man by the name of Anselm. He's a very holy man. He's a very intelligent man. Very well-educated man. He came from a well-to-do family. He's also very humble and loved the Lord. He was asked, or tasked, with leading the English church. And the story goes that immediately upon hearing this, he came down with a prodigious nosebleed. It was just like, oh no. Why did that happen? Well, he was kind of allergic to power. He, he'd grown up with, um, with a certain amount of, of power, and he continued to be placed in positions of authority and power, and it really troubled him. He had this sense of angst about him uh, because his family owned so much property. He didn't know what to do with that. One story, he he sees uh, some folks who have cornered an animal in town, and he begs them to let it go. Power and its relationship to love. Something that Anselm struggled with. When I read that this week, I thought, man, that probably, I, I know what that feels like when Joy wanted me to sing that first song. I was like, oh, nosebleed. Just a a little bit of sense of discomfort here um, for Anselm with power. Uh, Paul is going to talk to us this morning about power, about God's power. Joy said just a minute ago that God's ways are perfect. And we're going to look at how God wields power, about how God uses his authority. Uh, Paul's leading us into this. Uh, as he concludes chapter 3, remember in Ephesians, the first three chapters about God's blessing, about what happens to us, what God has done for us and continues to do for us once we trust in Jesus. The last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, are about kind of practical application. Here's Paul's prayer for us. Uh, listen for the times he mentions power and strength and love. Look at how they play together. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth gets its name. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Power and love. You might wonder why Anselm was so uncomfortable with being placed in a position of power. <clears throat> I had a little prayer quote for you that somehow I lost on the way in. But his prayer sort of reveals the essence of that. He says, why, oh my soul, are you not willing to go to the cross to have your own heart, he's talking to himself, to have your own heart pierced as with a sword as you see the soldiers piercing the side of your Savior with a spear. Why is that you're not able to watch as the hands of the Creator of the world are pierced with nails? Um, what we see there in that conversation, you know, he lived t uh, a thousand years after Christ, um, but he's asking his soul, why, why are you not any more ready to go to the cross, to spend time at the cross? In his prayer, it reveals that he's praying not just to the creator of the universe, to the one who is all-powerful, powerful because he has made everything that is and everything exists by his will. Uh, why are you not any more ready to go to the cross where we see not just the God who reigns in power, but also the one who gives his life in love? See, the cross is actually the place where we see the power of God at work. The power of God is revealed in love. In fact, love is the power of God. Why? Because it's effective. How is it effective? It does everything we've read about in the first three chapters. Ansel knew that his God was the God who is all-powerful and yet who empties himself even to the point of death in love. Self-giving love is the power of God. Ansel recognized in his own heart he didn't really want to go to the cross so much. And because of that reason, it was dangerous for him to be in a place, in a position of power. Um, Anselm lived a thousand years after Jesus. And he is uncomfortable with power. It is interesting to me that that is not the moment we find ourselves in presently. Uh, personally, or as a society. I think most of us understand power to be a good thing. The ability to get what you want or to direct the future. Maybe even getting back to that Luther quote that Joy shared with us. An ability to grasp hold. And if it's in your control, it's under your power. But we don't really live in that special of a moment. Yes, it's very strange. But even 100 years ago, there was a pandemic. Here. The 1918 Spanish flu, right? Churches shut down. People had to wear masks. It's odd. It's unusual. It's not good, but it's not that strange. We look at our society and we look at everyone grasping after power, or trying to maintain power, or trying to take power back. And, well, that's just been the way of the world. Let's go to the time of Jesus. Let's go to the first century or the time of the early church. And let's look at... Uh, the circumstance it, it might sound vaguely familiar at that point in time there was um, a government there was an empire uh, the likes of which the world had never seen before 
almost a global empire. It was the Roman Empire. It was all powerful. Powerful. And it maintained that power with some pretty interesting strategies. Separating people and groups so that nobody could ever really mount much of an organized rebellion and so on. But within the Roman Empire, there are all these different groups. And we're going to focus in on Israel and the people of Israel because they were under Roman occupation and they wanted to do what? They wanted to get rid of the powers that be and take it back for themselves. In fact, um, the Old Testament scriptures promise that when the Messiah comes, guess what? Israel is going to be placed again in that position of promise uh, or prominence. They're going to be again in a position of power in terms of the relationships with the rest of the world. But within Israel even, there were a few different groups that thought they would pursue power in particular ways. First, there were the zealots. Zealots. Their whole strategy around taking down the power of Rome and returning Israel to power revolved around violence. So there were skirmishes, there were uprisings, uh, there were swords and shields and spears and violence in the streets. The way that they were going to get power back was by attacking Rome. In fact, they understood that when the Messiah did come, he would be proved to be the Messiah. Why? Because he led Israel in a, in a military rebellion against Rome and took power back. So you got the Zealots. You also have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about keeping the rules you know, Paul was a Pharisee at one point. They followed the Old Testament teachings uh, in minute detail. And they wanted you to toe the party line. In fact, if you began to cross over party lines, guess what happened? Your power was taken away. You were sent aside. That's what happened with Jesus, right? Jesus was saying things the Pharisees did not like, and so what they do? Well, I guess ultimately they resorted to some violence as well. They put him to death. So you've got the zealots who are all about violence, violence in the streets. You've got the Pharisees who are about uh, making sure you toe the party line, and if you cross it, then you're going to be suppressed. And then there are the Sadducees, and they thought that um, in order to gain power, they needed to have a seat at the table. They needed to compromise some ideals, compromise um, what they really believed in order to have proximity to power. And so they began to partner up with the Romans thinking that maybe they could influence them a little bit and that ultimately the end justified the means. So it's kind of interesting, this relationship uh, to power. It's interesting how, I guess, the times change. They don't really so much because we live in a time and in a moment and in a government the likes of which the world has never seen. We live in the most powerful country that the world has ever known, don't we? And typically, my reaction to that is like, <clears throat> puff out my chest, I'll be like, yeah. I don't react so much like Anselm does. Oh, how do I deal with that? Am I prepared for that? Are we carrying that authority well? We live in a time and a place with the most powerful country the world has ever seen, and yet even within our country we see various groups beginning to try to take power away or preserve the powers that be, and there's some interesting tactics on display 
they don't seem that different from, well, the time of Jesus. The zealots were about violence, right? And we see that on the news. I, I read yesterday, so in Seattle, there were uh, there was a there was an Antifa rally, which has been burning and destroying and enacting violence. And then across in another city park in Seattle, there were the Proud Boys, right, who uh, demonstrate their willingness to engage in violence by you know being decked out in body armor and carrying uh, carrying weapons and so on. So, as different as those groups are, and it's certainly as different as they are from the Zealots. Um, their, react, their, their attitudes towards power are actually very similar, aren't they? Violence is going to be the way that we either take power away or preserve the power that is. There's a quickness, there's a readiness to engage in violence. That's the connection I want to draw, the zealots and then our current context. But there are other groups. There are the Pharisees, right, who want you to toe the party line. And my goodness, if we aren't all being called to toe the party line right now, if you begin to speak of something, maybe you can believe it, but you better not say anything or do anything about it that doesn't match the party line, whatever the party line is, what happens to you? You are shouted down or you are pushed aside or you're removed from a place of power and pushed to the fringe, to the edge. The party line is all important. That's how we're going to maintain power. That's how we're going to take back power from whichever vantage you're looking at it. Sounds a lot like the Pharisees, doesn't it? But you got the Sadducees. Those who are willing to compromise ideals, beliefs, what they really think, the way they know that they ought to be and behave in order to come close to power, to have a seat at the table because they think the end justifies the means. And isn't that a temptation for all of us? Power. In the first century, in the year 1070, in the year 2020, we all have to figure out how do, how do we react, how do we respond, how do we deal with proximity or actual power. Christians, specifically, have always had to sort through that. In the beginning, they had none. And then in 1070, they had all of it, Christendom. And then now, well, some of those strongholds seem to be fracturing or breaking apart. Power. What's our relationship to it? What's your relationship to it? What's a Christian relationship to it? So what I want to do this morning is not talk to you about the zealots or uh, about current folks engaged in violence. I don't want to talk about the Pharisees and those who are making you toe party lines or even those who are willing to compromise for power. I want, I want us to think about what does a Christian do? Because Paul says that God, he prays for God to give us power, actual power, so that we can be strengthened in our inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. He says there is power, God's power at work in you. What does that mean? How do we engage with it? Well, let's look at Jesus, right? So, so Jesus, second person of the Trinity, the Son of the Father, begotten before all worlds, is the one through whom everything has been made. Everything that exists, it exists because Jesus allows it. He is the ground and the foundation of all that is. He's that foundation stone, but he's also the thing that holds everything together, right? The keystone. What does it look like? Jesus is in this place having all authority that you could possibly imagine. We live in the most powerful country that ever existed, but compared to the power of God, I mean, it's almost insignificant or inconsequential. Jesus has all power, and what does he do with it? When he enters creation, 
He comes as a prince, as a ruler, as a wealthy man, as one who dominates, as a... Not really. He is born to a car carpenter. He's placed in a manger. You know, that thing the sheep eat out of. He comes, in some sense, giving away and giving up that power. In love. Why? In love. That's the whole point. In love for us, to be with us. To do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus, the one um, who whispered and galaxies came to be. The one who causes the waves to crash upon the sands of the shore. The one who sets the stars in their courses and gives life to you and to me. Does what with that power? He comes and he uses it to heal. To touch lepers and the blind and the lame and to raise them up. He comes with power to crush. No, he comes with power to heal and to transform and to give life. He does it in love. Jesus in power. No wonder Anselm was conflicted. How do we deal? What do we do? We look at Jesus and we see him having lived in love, which is the power of God. Now in a place, a peaceful place, a garden in prayer. Asking that we would be one as, as he and the father one. And moments later, we see soldiers and rabble rousers carrying pitchforks and torches, swords and spears coming to arrest him in the garden. Jesus, the all powerful one, arrested by, you know, a ragtag bunch of, you know, guys with clubs. Jesus, the one who could call down angels in a moment, the angels of heaven, and just completely wipe them away. Um, Jesus watches as one of his disciples raises up a sword, draws it out, raises it, cuts off one of the person's ears. And Jesus says, no, put your sword away. And he uses his power to reach out and touch the man's ear and to restore it. Do you think those guys have much confidence in the ropes they used to bind his wrists as they walk back? Probably not. And yet walk back he does. This all-powerful one goes into the courts of worldly power. Stands before Pilate. Symbol of worldly power. Symbol of the most powerful country the world had yet known. And he stands in judgment over Jesus. This man with worldly power pronouncing judgment on the all-powerful one. And what does he do? He stands silent. He goes to the cross. This all-powerful one, the one who holds the worlds in his hands and allows us to place these little nails in them. And in his feet. Him who... The, the, the earth is his footstool, allows his feet to be driven through with nails. The all-powerful one gives it up in love for us, for you and for me. It's not just Jesus who does this, it's his disciples. Every one of the disciples is, ends up, except John, I guess, who is on the Isle of Patmos, is killed, even as Jesus was killed. Uh, Stephen is the first one. He's arrested, tried, he testifies to what God has done in Jesus, that he's raised him up, that he offers salvation in his name, and they condemn him to death and proceed to stone him. And the way this worked is often they would bury you up to a certain level and gather around you with huge rocks and just pelt you with them until you died. 
And what does Stephen do? In love, he asks for God to forgive them. Even as Jesus cried from the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. Power and love. God's power given to you. Paul prays for God's power at work in you. We're all scrambling, seeking, reaching after power. Our society does it just like every other one has done. What makes Christians different? What's your orientation to power? Is violence okay pretty quickly for you? Or is making sure that you toe the party line, whatever your party happens to be, the thing that makes someone worthy of power? Or if they cross it, you set them aside and shout them down and ridicule them? Is you feel all too ready to compromise what you really believe just so that because the end justifies the means and we have now what's your orientation to power? I just want to caution you this morning. Who are you willing to follow as you approach power? And how far are you willing to go? Uh, If you follow Jesus, it's also difficult as Anselm recognizes it's difficult to follow him all the way because what does Jesus do? He gives his life away for the sake of the world and love is the power of God that brings a new heavens and a new earth. You know, if you crush somebody and demonstrate your power, nothing really changes. You just have control. But as Jesus has showed us, when you love someone, and they experience change in their life, that's real power. That really affects something, doesn't it? Perhaps we can be known together as a people who love, who follow our Lord Jesus Christ, the all-powerful one. But when his power is at work in us, allows us to know the breadth and length and height and depth. And who also reminds us that we are thinking so, so, so small. He wants to fill us with all the fullness of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.